This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is uh, Dr. William A. Cohen, but I go by Bill Cohen, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, sometimes I wonder myself, but I'm the president of a startup university. We're about two years old now uh, by the name of California Institute of Advanced Management. And uh, we offer one degree and one degree only, the Master of Business Administration, the MBA. And we incorporate Peter Drucker, who was my professor when I got my doctorate and a good friend afterward for many, many years until he passed away some years ago. And I, um, I absolutely love. I should, I should add. You're the author of this new book, The Practical Drucker. Um, which... Ah, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely. Am a, I, I am the author of The Practical Drucker, and uh, which, it, which <laughs> tries to incorporate, does incorporate, forty different chapters, which apply. In fact, someone asked me, "Well, you mean Drucker was impractical?" And the answer is, no, he was not. He was very practical. But Drucker did so much in his lifetime. And uh, even though he leave, lived to the age of 96 years, but he did so much in so many different areas of management that he couldn't possibly do everything, although he certainly covered the ground. And so Drucker really mentioned what to do, but he rarely taught us how to do it. And so what I uh, have tried to do in the practical Drucker is to fill in that and explain what uh, from his what to do and translate that into how to do these various things. Yeah, and and I think it's absolutely awesome. I, I look at I look at Drucker, and I'm a, a huge fan of his work. In fact, I was just uh, talking to a friend of mine who just began his doctoral studies, uh, and he was reading some Drucker and really really enjoying it. And I said, you know, he did he is still this amazing voice that I think kind of keeps the discussion about management elevated at the level that it it should be in a world where we lampoon with shows like The Office where we lampoon management. He he kept it in a respectful way where where it should be. But the other thing is he's such a brilliant thinker and the research that he did and the thoughts that he put out there. But, you know, at on this podcast and in this community we're all about putting ideas into practice, bridging the gap between scholar and thinker and practitioner. And that's why I actually absolutely love uh, this practical Drucker because it's about that. It's taking these uh, ideas from Drucker, distilling them down, and then adding, like you said, the how-to, the way to apply it, so that people can be uh, almost scholarly practitioners in Drucker, um, in and of themselves. I guess actually, I had three chapters that that I really resonated with. But before we dig into that, I kind of want to hear more about your um, connection with him. You said you you know you were his first PhD graduate, and then you uh, grew up. To uh, or you lived on to be friends with him at least as long as he was with us. Um, tell me a bit more about how that relationship developed and how how his how he influenced you especially. Okay, well, first I have to say, I was his first PhD graduate in the executive management program because there were others at uh, you know before before then. Uh, but the executive management program was a program that was started in uh, back in mid in the 1975. And the idea was that management had become so complex that you really, the more you could give at the doctoral level, especially the way, you know, the better top managers we'd have. And so now you mentioned about how I, I got it. It's really kind of interesting because I was working for a corporation. And of course, I was well aware who Drucker was. We used uh, one of Drucker's books. And so I knew who he was, but I had, uh, I'm not from California. And uh, I had uh, applied. Uh, I was uh, about every ten years I'd get interested in in going back to school. I did, you know, my bachelor's at West Point, my master's at the University of Chicago, 
But uh, now I felt another 10 years have gone by, and I felt the urge to once once again. So at first I applied to some school advertising in the Wall Street Journal, and it turned out to be a plumber mill, which in those days in California were all over the place. And so uh, Claremont uh, Graduate University, which was uh, or Claremont Graduate School in those days, where Drucker was, was very well known. Although I didn't know Drucker was there, and uh, I had applied, I applied for this not really knowing what I was getting into, and they're about 30 miles from Los Angeles. So I drove out and uh, uh, did not, still didn't know whether maybe these guys were a diploma mill. Also met with the dean, and the dean, uh, uh, you know, he said this is going to be a very controversial program because. Uh, you know, it, it, everyone in it's going to be an executive in a in a corporation, and uh, you know that's headed toward the top. And uh, we want you to take some Drucker, and I didn't know that Drucker was there, and I but I knew Drucker was, and I thought, well, is Drucker at this school? And so I I didn't want to embarrass the dean, so I said, uh, excuse me, dean, but uh, which Drucker is this? <laughs> And he said, there's only one Peter Drucker, <laughs> you know. So that's, that's how I found that he was there. And I really resonated uh, to uh, to uh, Peter's work. And I call him Peter. I, it's not meant to be insulting or too familiar. He insisted that all his students call him call him Peter. And uh, and so I, I did that. We became friends. He was very interested in the military. Now, in those days, I was, uh, you know, very junior officer, uh, in fact, I was—I had left the left the Air Force for a brief period and uh, was had been, I'd left as a, a young major, and had went back in as a as a captain a few years just about the time I graduated, and I think through through Drucker's applying what Drucker taught, and uh, utilizing these things, uh, I was fortunate enough to be eventually to be promoted to a major general before I before I left, and Drucker was just a absolute genius. And I was very fortunate to befriend him, and we maintain, as I mentioned, maintain contact just about almost until the time he died. And I uh, really enjoyed my, uh, I mean, the guy was an absolute genius and was willing to work with his students in, in every way he could. Yeah, and I, and I love that you are continuing that on both through um, the California Institute of Advanced Management, but also through this book. And there's there's three areas that really resonated with me, um, and they're, they're areas that I think are actually quite relevant because they're sort of ahead of their time in some ways. Um, the first one I thought was really interesting was around engagement. Um, we've talked a, a, a lot through the four years that the Leader Lab podcast has been around about employee engagement. It's a really, really big trend right now. Uh, and you talk about how Drucker may not have used that term, but he addressed this issue and he even outlined four paths to an engaged worker, four paths to developing people on your team, making sure they were engaged. Tell me a bit about Drucker's take on engagement. Sure. He was, you know, Drucker was eminently logical. And what he, I mean, and sec, in fact, a lot of the things that he said after he said to me, I thought, gee, gee, why didn't I think of that? I mean, it was nothing like uh, some magic hocus pocus that no one ever thought of. But they were, they were really interesting. And he believed that if you did four different things simultaneously, you would get the desired results of what, you know, today we call an engaged employee. One is, you know, be careful about your placement and promotion. I mean, he thought that uh, this was done too haphazardly in a lot of cases. He thought that a lot of, for example, uh, even uh, um, even basic hiring was done incorrectly. They were done uh, based on uh, maybe uh, the school that the individual went to rather than the performance that the individual uh, 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 showed. I don't mean by grade point average, but, uh, for example, if it was an undergraduate, 
Uh, did that individual work while he was going to school? Did he do some special things outside of the school for his church or synagogue or whatever or, or any any other nonprofit organization? And, and so he felt that, that people didn't pay enough attention to that and should really, uh, should really look at accomplishments that people have done rather than simply the school they went to or the, even the GPA that they achieved. And the other thing, the same thing with promotion in an organization. He thought promotion as well as hiring should be looked at and discussed with several people before a decision was made simply to promote or hire some individual and just promote them and that was it. Uh, he always felt that if a, a promotion failed, it was really the, the responsibility, the fault of the individual that had done it, not uh, not necessarily the person that had been promoted. In other words, if an individual was successful for, I don't know, for 20 or 30 years with a company, and then you promoted to a senior to a more senior position, and he failed, he said, "This is obviously a, an error that was made by the guy who promoted him. He did something wrong. It was either a square peg in a round hole, or maybe the job was not doable by anybody." But in any case, he wanted that person to take responsibility. Another another thing around the same lines about this aiming for careful placement and promotion is he said a failure was not the end of the world, that uh, many great people failed. Churchill, for example, failed in Gallipoli during World War I terribly and demoted from the, uh, you know, from a senior position. I think he was uh, uh, the head of the Admiralty. It was a very senior position to be, uh, went on the line in uh, the trenches in World War I as a, uh, as a lieutenant colonel, as a battalion commander. And yet, here's a guy that practically uh, certainly saved England, if not the entire world, during the during the, during World War II. So he said, failure means it just simply means he failed. It's not the end of the world. There's no such thing. He he was not, uh, you know, uh, he was. Uh, some people identified him with Peter Lawrence, who thought of the Peter Principle, you know, where one rose to a level of incompetence. He said there was no such thing like that. That you know, you could draw, you could fail, and then go on ahead to even greater things. So that was the first thing. Second thing was he said you've got to demand high standards of performance if you want to engage employers if, or employees. If you just let them sit around and, and uh, you know, let them get, uh, do what they want to do, you would not have an engaged employer, employee. You, that, that they wanted to respond to high standards. They wanted to high st- and they wanted the pride of, of knowing that they had done these things. So this was very important. Um, another thing that was done an uh, awful lot by leaders is they, they try to lead through um, withholding information. In other words, they don't, they don't let everything get out. They keep everything a secret or they, you don't know what you're doing. Gosh, I've seen a lot of things go wrong because of that. And I've seen it go wrong in academia as well. We're a, uh, we're a president of one company for, or one uh, university, for example, did not allow his, uh, his, uh, uh, his administrators or even his uh, instructors to know that they were, on, they were on probation by their accreditor, believe it or not, and did not tell them that. Well, the students found out about it, and it was crazy because he had told his uh, professors that they had done just well on the accreditation, which, which, which was true. In most cases, in the in the uh, you know they come in uh, periodically. They credit every five years. They inspect and everything, and they've done pretty well. But they also put on probation for one error, and they didn't mention that. And the students found out about it. So put everybody in a bad situation. So you want to make sure that everyone that is in an organization that is in the, if they're going to be engaged, they have to know what's going on. Otherwise, they don't trust you, and and they're and, and really don't can't operate very well. Um, you know the the final thing was uh, he wanted he thought all uh, all employees ought, ought to have a uh, 
a vision of what was going on at the higher levels and where it was, what was happening. And, you know, he called it a managerial vision, and he felt that this was what was going to lead them to success. That if they uh, if they proceeded with that, that they wanted, it gave them an idea what the what it, what the cor- where the corporation was heading, but it all or where the organization because it didn't have to be a corporation, but it also meant too. It's there's an old saying that. Uh, I, I don't know where exactly it came from the military that every soldier should have a, a marshal's baton in his knapsack. Well, we don't even use knapsacks nowadays, and I don't think the marshals, we don't need marshals in the U.S. Army anyhow, but we don't use batons either. But what it meant was that even a lowest-ranking individual could really become a very, very high-ranking person in the corporation. And I've personally met, and you, I'm sure you have it also, David, of, of many people that have started out the bottom of our organization and, and rose to the very top. And so he thought that giving them this managerial vision was was eminently important. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, even some people that you meet at the entry levels in the organization and you look at it and you just kind of know 20 years from now, I'm going to come back and it's they're going to their name's going to be in the corner office door. Um, and I really like the, the point about the responsibility of managerial success being on the person that promoted them to that position. You know, I, I kind of have made a similar argument even in hiring, which I don't even think we do from an onboarding perspective. When we hire someone and they don't work out, we tend to blame that person instead of looking to the person that hired them and said, you know, what what happened here? I've, I've personally witnessed in organizations people who were hired, brought in, and then the manager who hired that initial person was promoted on up. And then in the time between when that manager was promoted, you know, and now several of their hires have have flamed out and have been uh, not a good fit. And we don't I don't think we take the time to do that reflective getting feedback really on anything whether it be on failures or even successes. The way Drucker sort of advocated both with when people don't work out um, reflecting themselves through failure but even the manager who hired them reflecting on why didn't this work. How true. How true. Very true. Well, I, I want to move on to another uh, area, which I think is, is personally really interesting, and it is, you know, there's a famous saying about Drucker with, about the purpose of business, <clears throat> and, you know, he said this at a time where I think a lot of people thought, okay, yeah, the purpose of business, get a, you know, attain a customer, awesome, that makes perfect sense. What I think he saw on the horizon, or must have, and was ahead of his time, is that shortly after he said that, we kind of got into this mode where the purpose of business suddenly became profit and maximizing shareholder value and all of these things that I don't think he was in agreement with. And ironically, now I think we're right on the cusp of a time where people are saying, yeah, the purpose of business isn't just a profit motive. There's something else here about the business and customer relationship. Tell me a bit more about Drucker's thoughts on the the primary purpose of a business. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, he, you know, he said the, the purpose of a business is to create a customer. Now, he had thought this thing through. In other words, some people think, well, this is a very altruistic thing, but he wasn't thinking altruism so much. He thought uh, profit was just the, the fuel or the, the air or the oxygen, if you will, to get to the part you know, of, of creating a customer. And through a customer, now, uh, if you created a customer and you did this properly and everything, of course, uh, pr- more profit came. And, and uh, as he saw it, you know, that money should go into uh, two basic functions of business, of marketing and innovation. And he, saw, he thought that uh, it was a, uh, the, a company had to innovate or would eventually die. But uh, basically, he saw a, a business was not, not, for, not for profit, and he said it was a grave mistake to focus on profit that eventually it would lead to more problems than you could possibly imagine, and it was counterproductive. It's interesting to me that Steve Jobs said something along the same lines, by the way. 
I mean, Steve Jobs, uh, you know, who was not college educated even, and I don't know whether he read Drucker or did not read Drucker, but I, I do know that, that Jobs said that, you know, if you focus on profit, that this is a big mistake. If you focus on the product, that this is, you may well get to profit, but this is what you really need to do is focus on the product. Well, in a sense, he was saying the same thing. If you focus on the product, then you will create a customer as per Drucker, and, uh, and this may well lead to increased profits. But if you focus on the profit rather than that, you, you, it, may, it may direct you into cost, uh, you know, into getting a, uh, uh, cutting the, the cost of the, of the product, uh, making a, a less desirable product in some fashion, a cheap product uh, or various other things that could really get you into trouble. And, I, again, I see this a lot, too, and I'm sure you have as well. And I see this in all fields. I see this, in, uh, again, in academia as well where people have, have, and a lot of schools are in trouble just because of that, that they have, they have shut, cut down the profit, or excuse me, cut down on the product, cut down on the product, cut down on the product, really the, the service of education. And as a consequence, they are now losing students. And this is not only small organizations, small universities, small schools, but also the very largest are all hurting right now. And, uh, and this, I think, is a primary reason. Oh, no, I, I totally agree. Several Several months ago on the podcast, we were interviewing Michael Rayner, and, and he has a, a great sort of restatement. This this is the irony of Drucker, right? People come out with these amazing ideas, and it's sort of like, well, Drucker was right, and you just got more data that proved it, which he, he'll admit. But his he likes to phrase it as revenue before costs, right? Because if you think about profit, you have to have revenue and you have to have costs. And if you're too focused on a profit motive, then all you do is tweak costs. What he's saying is that all of the successful businesses out there focus on revenue, either generating a product that's better quality and allows them to charge more or marketing so that's innovation or marketing what Jarker would say focusing on getting more people buying the product focusing on that as a means to attaining profit more than just uh, focusing on cutting costs because if you're and and all of that is in the service of, of generating a better customer if you're too focused on just profit there's a really easy way to be profitable and that's to spend no money in a quarter but take in all the money that you you still take in the challenge with that is that next quarter there's no new money coming in that's right very true. And I, I, uh, the, the book is, is full of insights like that. And one of my favorites is, is the final chapter. Um, and I think it's ironic because as close to Drucker as you were, you even say it in this last chapter that you get this question all the time. Uh, and as you were writing the book, you sort of decided, I'm going to re rethink through and make sure that I know the proper answer to this question. And that question is, what is Peter Drucker's most valuable lesson? He's a man that wrote about everything, organizations running the gamut from uh, for-profit to nonprofits and everything, uh, every iteration of an organization in between, and every level of an organization uh, inclusive. He had a lot of lessons out there. What do you feel like is his most valuable lesson? Oh boy, I'll tell you. I mean, there's so many, and you, we, you know, so many things that he said that were so wise and, and that uh, mean so much. I mean, everything from one saying which he didn't write about very much, but he said that what what everyone knows is usually wrong. <laughs> and, you know, if you think about that, that's really true. I mean, everything from the very simplistic things, such as, uh, you know, the, the earth is flat, uh, you know, but also everyone knows also, one of the things that I came up with that I found somewhere was, the you know, in the, um, 
uh, Sherlock Holmes. What's the famous thing that everyone knows that Sherlock Holmes said? And everyone, uh, almost everyone will say, well, yes, he, what he said was elementary, my dear Watson. That that's the thing that he said. But actually, he never, ever, ever, not once said that in a book written by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, you know, who wrote Sherlock Holmes. That was said by Basil Rathbone in the movies in the 1940s, but it was never said by Sherlock Holmes, the, the real character. Well, what, uh, what, what Drucker, in my opinion, after, after really a lot of thought about what about this is, Drucker really taught us, taught us how to think in you know, just so many different ways. And I think this is uh, how we, uh, one of the ways that I think that we've translated things that, uh, of what he said, and what he really meant, I and mean, then he said what to do, and then we translate this into how to do it. I mean, he was, Drucker was a great forecaster, by the way, in many ways, I and mean, he predicted the current recession, I don't know, 40 years ago, I would say, and he said so many different things. He predicted the rise of the Internet, and especially for education, and just, just a dozens and dozens and dozens of ways. But uh, one time someone asked him in the classroom, um, how is it that you're able to come up with all these great predictions? And Drucker paused, and this is a typical Drucker sense of humor. He paused, and then he said, I listen. Pause. And then he said, to myself. <laughs> so we all laughed about that. But I, I believe that Drucker taught us and taught me certainly how to think. And if I didn't express that well in the last chapter, I don't know if I did or not, but I'll be more than anything else. He really taught me how to how to think, and uh, and I really uh, I really uh, think that all of us need to spend the time to think through a lot of these things. That everything from uh, from engagement, where we in hiring and promotion and so forth, and how we how we're going to get folks that uh, that work in our organization to be engaged. Every everything from that on through to making predictions, or and and right across the board, we have to think. You know, I think that's a, a I think, ironic, uh, it's a wonderful lesson. And I, I feel like a lot of times we're so focused on knowing as opposed to thinking. And I, it's, I, that might be semantics. But when I when I say that, I mean, I, we feel like as soon as we get into a leadership or management position, we have to know the answers and know what the right thing to do is instead of feeling comfortable going, hang on, let's all collectively think about this and make sure we're in line about what is the right thing to do moving forward. And I, and I love that Drucker, one of the, one of the world's greatest, history's probably greatest, history's greatest management thinker, reminds us, take some time and actually think about management. Don't, your, your people will be okay if you can take some time and don't pretend you know the right answer and end up doing the wrong thing. But think about it and think through it. I think that's a great lesson. If, if it's okay, I'd like to actually switch from the book and from, from Peter, from uh, Drucker, to you and ask you a couple questions. The, the first, sure, absolutely. The first being, what are you reading now? Well, I'm, I'm rereading The Practical Drucker for one thing. I mean, I, I recommend that to all book authors who, who read, uh, I, you know, that they should reread their, the, what, what they write. But I, I'm reading uh, about uh, – um, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in Custer. For various reasons, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the uh, George Armstrong Custer. For one thing, I have to tell you that I graduated West Point with the lowest math average since uh, George Armstrong Custer graduated in the class of June of 1861, and that's a true statement. But I got through okay, though. And the other thing is that uh, about Custer himself, though, is he's largely misunderstood in a lot of ways. 
Uh, he was the youngest major general in the Union Army during the Civil War. He was only uh, he was only 28 years old at the time that he was promoted to major general, and he earned it. I mean, and he never lost a single battle except for the last one that we all know about, the Battle of Little Bighorn. Uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn himself was a, a a fight that he knew that he could not win, but he felt that he had no choice, that it was his duty. He was not naive or anything. Uh, the intelligence that was provided him was very faulty, that uh, they, uh, the government told him there would be no more than 1,000 or 800 hostiles. He knew that and stated that there would be three, three or four times that many. So he, he knew what he was getting into, and as uh, uh, the the individual that wrote uh, Dances with Wolves some years ago wrote a book about Custer, as a matter of fact. And uh, he was interviewed on television, and the author, the, the interviewee, I think was on Today's show, uh, were very upset, or seemed to be anyway, that he seemed to be indicating that Drucker was a great hero. And he said Drucker was a great hero. He said... Like many, when I first started to research or when I Drucker, when I first started to research Custer, I thought he was some kind of crazed guy that you know went off, got himself killed, and hated Indians and so forth. But that's not true. He said Custer himself, in his own book, wrote that if he was a, a an American Indian, he would be fighting against the Federals, you know, for for the way we treated them and what we were doing. And that, uh, uh, so he said he was really was a, a hero, and it's unfortunate that uh, beginning about the 1930s, for various reasons, someone wrote a book about Custer, which uh, which indicated that he was, you know, that he was a glory hunter. In fact, that was the name of the book. And uh, he said that it really was inaccurate. He said, what I try to do, he says, you know, when I wrote Dances with Wolves, he said, I got beat up because everyone said I was being politically correct. And now he said, uh, you know, that I've written this book about Custer. He said, I think it was called Marching to Valhalla. Um, he said, uh, uh, now everybody on the other side comes out, you know, that I, uh, you know, that I'm, uh, you know, an arch conservative or something. But anyway, so Custer's always been of some interest to me. And I'm reading, and I, I think I have a number of books about Custer, and I'm reading, a, you know, reading one now also. Hmm. And and in line with uh, you know what you're reading and what you we've been talking about um, both at the um, at the California Institute of Advanced Management and with this book, what's next for you? And what should we look for? What should we look for on the horizon from you? Well, I you know I really like what I'm doing. I mean, the California Institute of Advanced Management is doing incredible things. I mean, really incredible. For example, our students finish an MBA, which normally takes two years. They finish it in only uh, in 11 in 11 months they uh, they do during their uh, work here they take everyone takes the same course they get an MBA in executive management and entrepreneurship we only permit a maximum of 20 in a class total and they do consulting real consulting for real companies and teams of four in every single class that they take so they've interfaced with a number of different organizations uh, the professors are all have have uh, doctorates in their fields uh, from accredited universities, and they're only permitted to le- lecture one hour out of every four. They, uh, we provide them with guest executive speakers that come in and talk for an hour, or guest lectures from research universities that come in over Skype. And I mean that these are top universities, everything from uh, uh, from uh, UCLA, USC, uh, UC Berkeley, MIT, Harvard, Cornell. Uh, Princeton, we've had all the top universities looked in. We have you know research professors that talk directly to the students in the classroom, Skype over that. 
the textbooks we all own, we 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 commission them from around the country, and they're they're cyber textbooks. So that in addition to the textual material, they're linked to uh, PowerPoints, they're linked to to uh, videos. They have all of this, and they're equivalent of about 500 to 1,000 pages each. The students get them free; they don't pay anything for them whatsoever. The students compete to get in. We have pretty high standards. We're looking for not only GPAs, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is their accomplishments. We want to know what they did when they did their undergraduate degree. So we've got some really great students. They really do. Uh, the, we had our first graduation last uh, last June. We had two students, but we had 100 people in attendance, and they include the uh, presidents or the representatives from a number of the surrounding universities. We had a color guard from UCI, USC. We had the three general officers there. We we had uh, a guest speaker from uh, from Vancouver, Camp flew in, who, uh, who were nonprofit, so he had given us the money to found the school. We had a guest speaker from the Peter Ducker, who was the president of Peter Ducker Academies of China, Hong Kong. Uh, we got an award from the local universities, and it was uh, really a big thing honoring these two first graduates. And it was pointed out that uh, the you know the, well I pointed out that West Point had two graduates in 1802. And uh, the uh, friend of mine pointed out that he was uh, he was the CEO of City of Hope, which is a major uh, uh, you know hospital in the local area here, and he started a graduate school of four physicians and so forth while he was there in 1996. And he says, we only had two graduates in our first class too, and then it was pointed out to me by one of the uh, our guest speaker from the Peter Drucker Academy of China, Hong Kong. That the or our guest speaker from Vancouver is also Chinese, who pointed out that the first uh, the the graduate in class I think was the at the University of Hong Kong had two graduates and I forget I think it was 1896, and one of them was Sun Yat-sen, the father of modern China. So we concluded that maybe there was some magic in the in having two graduates in the first class. But at any rate. Uh, <laughs> We uh, um, so I'm very proud of that, and I don't expect to be doing. I expect to be doing this, um, you know, uh, for into the future. I mean, I'm very very happy with it. I'm very uh, proud of our professors and our administrators, and of course, especially our students. Well, and it's a it's an amazing model, one that's steeped in uh, in in the type of innovation that Peter Drucker would be proud of, playing around with with business models and thinking through what's the what's the right way to do it. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. We'll obviously keep an eye on uh, other books coming out from you and other insights uh, from Peter Drucker. I feel like uh, he he's a man who's who will resonate for a very very long time. I think it's unfortunate that we call uh, Frederick Taylor the father of management because I think we should just skip about fifty years and just give that title over to Drucker. <laughs> Um, in in the meantime, though, uh, I want to encourage our listeners to check out the Practical Drucker. If you feel like you you've dabbled in Drucker before, but you feel like it's a little bit too much of the uh, the what and the things to think about, but you want a little bit more of the how, check out the Practical Drucker. It's a great great read for that. And Bill, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you, sir. I enjoyed it very much. 